Hello, I'm Pastor Eric Longman. Welcome to Adult Bible Study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Rogers, Arkansas. Each week we gather to talk through some passage of scripture or some interesting topic that has come up in the life of a church, and we invite you to come along for the ride and to listen in. Just a bit of a setup, Holy Trinity is a member congregation of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, or LCMS. We believe in salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and we place Jesus and his suffering, death, and resurrection for the sake of sinful people like you and me at the center of our teaching. You should know going in that I'm very much open to exploring rabbit holes in Bible study. I take on it as simple. Whatever passage of scripture we're looking at is just an entry point. It gets us into God's word and it opens the door for the discussion to go wherever the Holy Spirit takes us. So don't be surprised when we wander down some pathways that maybe are only tangentially related to the topic at hand. It makes for some interesting conversations, and we're blessed with a group that's happy to share their experiences along the way. So with that, let's jump in to this week's episode. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Adult Bible Study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. I am Pastor Longman. Um, I will remind you, as usual, that we are recording for the podcast, so don't say anything that you don't want to have on the internet forever. Um, A couple of things before we get started. Um, First, any questions that anybody has about anything? Pat is back home. So, yeah, last week I gave you this glowing update. You know, Pat's doing great. Everything's good. And then this week he was in a hospital. Um, he was retaining fluid, and there was some other stuff going on. It was it was scary at first because he went to the ER, and they said, oh, you've still got the infection, and you're retaining all this fluid, and, you know, it was scary. And when he got to Mercy and the specialists saw him, they were like, no, you don't have an infection. You're fine. You are retaining some fluid, but we know how to deal with that. Um um, did everybody get this? Everybody signed? Okay. Um, and, and within a couple of days, they were able to get all that fluid down. He was feeling much better. And he's back home. But along those lines, we have a card. This is Judy. Thank you for doing that. Um, so we'll send this around. If you have a note of encouragement for Pat, um, go ahead and sign that. And we'll get that in the mail to him today. Um, other questions about anything? That was, a, that was beautiful. It was like a setup or something. I owe you a dollar. I owe you a dollar. Yes, Myron. Pat Pickett, um, who usually sits over here. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. We're sitting here talking about people. You go, I don't even know who that person is. <laughs> he's been, yeah, really since Christmas, he's been in and out of the hospital. Um, okay, you know, with, with Lent starting on Wednesday, we've got the Lenten suppers every Wednesday, um, I have volunteered you guys because you did such a good job last time. We've got it on the 28th, so in three weeks. Two weeks? Three weeks. Um, I'm going to send around a, a sign-up sheet if you guys want to do it, and can I ask Elaine or, or Brittany or somebody to kind of take the lead to make sure that everything gets handled? Brittany, you got it? Okay. So I'll send this around, and I'll let you have it when it's done. Um, what else? is So Wednesday is Ash Wednesday that begins the season of Lent. Um, and as a reminder to you, that means that, that midweek services crank up again. Um, every Wednesday, we will have services at 10 a.m. and 7 p.m. 
And then there's also a Lenten supper from 5.30 to, I don't know, whenever it ends. Um, so come for, for that. I know for a fact, I don't know if I'm supposed to give this away or not. I'm going to tell you, but don't tell anybody else. Um, I know this Wednesday, the Lenten supper is actually breakfast or supper, which is fun. So um, we'll have it on the 28th, as I mentioned. Um, and those will be streamed as well as usual. If you're a user of the live stream, just know that we've made some changes. If you're not familiar with this, we've been having all kinds of chaos with the live stream lately, and we replaced a bunch of software this week and made some tweaks to the configuration, and hopefully the live stream will be much better. Um, it did go smoothly today, so fingers crossed that the new software is, was the answer. Um, if you weren't aware of this, um, when we had that cold snap recently, when it was so cold, I went into the life center down there, and it was 45 degrees. It was freezing. Um, and we did a little digging, and it turned out of the four HVAC units that cover that part of the building, this many of them were working. Zero. Not one of them was working. So um, Bob Bauer jumped on it. He got the pros here. They looked at him, and they said, well, of the four, we can get one going. The other three have failed motors in them. And they are 20-plus years old, and it really is not a good idea to try and fix them. So we now have three brand-new HVAC units in the Life Center. And here's the cool part about that story. Um, because of y'all's generosity in giving and because we have a church council that are good stewards, we had the money set aside. It was no big deal to stroke a check for a little over $20,000 to put those units in. So thank God for that. Um, it's cozy down there, so if you want to go hang out at the Life Center, check it out. Um, and, and the neat thing is the newer units obviously are more efficient than the old ones and, and more powerful. So even if that fourth unit fails, I don't think we have to do anything. I think it, it's just kind of an extra tag-along for now. Any other questions about anything? It's Super, Day, Super Bowl Sunday. I've heard something about that. Is ball game today or something? How many people? Whoa. <laughs> Ooh, what about the 49ers? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, you know, kind of an even split. Somebody asked. We, we talked about it and then I don't know where. Yes. <laughs> it covers both of them, doesn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> certainly the one who scores the most points. <laughs> We're sure of that. We're in the Book of Romans. Um, if you don't have it, we got some extra sheets up here. Um, it's still working on lesson one, but we made pretty good progress last week. We answered five questions, which is like a miracle for us. Um, so we'll pick up and continue with the book of Romans. But before we do, let's begin with a devotion. As usual, we start with uh, this book, By Faith Alone, by Martin Luther. It's just a devotions, 365 of them. Well, I don't know what we're going to do this year, the leap year. Let's see what it says. Sorry, we got nothing for the 29th. So. It's your, it, it, we won't. <laughs> That's a Thursday. 
All right, so today's passage is from John 6.35. Jesus told them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never become hungry, and whoever believes in me will never become thirsty. And the title of this is The Bread of Life. Here's what Luther had to say. These are unusually direct words. Christ is bread. He is food given by God. Whoever eats this bread will be satisfied, will not hunger or thirst, and will live forever. Furthermore, this bread from heaven was standing right in front of the Israelites. Jesus began his sermon gently enough, whoever comes to me. The further he proceeded, the more pointed and direct he became. He could have easily said, whoever eats of me instead of whoever comes to me, but that would have been premature. He wanted the people to understand him, so he used the words, whoever comes to me, and then explained that it is meant, whoever believes in me. This is a profound statement. To come to Christ is to believe in Christ. It means having the bread and eating it. Jesus, however, wasn't talking about eating in a church or at a wedding. He wasn't talking about eating beef or veal, as his listeners might have thought. He was speaking of bread in the sense of people coming to Christ. In other words, believing in Christ. For eating and coming to Christ and believing in Christ all mean the same. Christ comes to us, and the Father gives us manna from heaven. All that's missing is for us to come to him. Now, that may offend you. You can't come to Christ, even if you're his closest relative, unless you believe in him. Through his word, Christ is closer to you than a child with his arms wrapped around your neck. When you believe in him, then he is with you, and he's close to you. He's right in front of you, before your eyes and ears, so that you can almost see and hear him. Simply believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for um, bringing us to this faith, to this place where we believe in you, where we come to you, where we look to you for life and salvation and forgiveness. Be with us today. Send your holy angels to guide and lead our discussion, uh, that we might be, be fed by it, but also that we might take away from it the truths that you want us to understand. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thoughts or comments? We, we started last week with the book of Romans. We kind of talked about um, who Paul was writing to and why he was writing and when it was written and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we spent a little bit of time just in the introduction as we looked at the first few verses of that, first seven verses. Anything that popped up in your mind over the course of the week that you want to explore a little deeper? Or any questions that it, we left you with from last week? I'm giving you plenty of time while my software fires up. Okay, so um, on your sheets, um, we're down to question number six. Um, do you need a sheet back there? Do you need a sheet? Oh, you need a pencil. Can, can we just send that around for you? You got one? Nice. Ask and you shall receive. I read that in a book. Um, Romans 1, we're going to look at 8 through 15. Uh, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, 
that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There ends the reading. Did I go? Yeah, that was right. Thoughts, comments, questions? Anything that jumped out at you as you heard that? Yeah. Yeah. It is a neat encouragement. And actually, you'll freak people out, but in a good way. <laughs> because because so often what you hear from folks is I'll pray for you and then that's the end of it. But to say, hey, why don't we pray right now? That's a powerful thing. And and he's right. I've done that many times and nobody has ever said, nah, I don't want you to pray for me. So yeah, it's always been an invitation and an opportunity. Yeah, so what a great way to start the letter though, that Paul kind of starts this relationship off with, hey, I'm all time praying for you, which is pretty neat. What else? Okay, yeah, th there's that there's that desire to visit with them, and, th and he talks a little bit about that. What else, Myron? Yeah. Yeah, you hear those echoing of the same kind of words and that same sentiment. That's true. Um, any other thoughts? All right, I'm going to give you the answers to the first two questions. How many times does Paul use first-person pronouns, I, me, I, my, mine, in this section? The answer is 16. Is that what you came up with? How many times did he use the second-person plural pronouns, you and your? And this is you, but I'm from the South. The answer is y'all. <laughs> that would be y'all and y'alls. How would you come up with mine? 12 is exactly right. Yeah, 12. Why? What's the reason for that? I should say. What do you think is the reason for that? Because there's no definitive answer. It's personal, yeah. It's a connection. So he wants to have a relationship. And that's it's really an introductory letter because remember, Paul is writing to people who have not met him. They probably know who he is. Paul's Paul's reputation, I'm sure, precedes him in Rome. but. He's opening the door for a relationship. And so that I and we and y'all language reflects that. Um, what are, this is good. I'm going to be taking good notes on this now. What are some lessons that a pastor could learn from these verses about the conduct of his ministry? Oh, Lynn, speaking as a retired pastor. One of my professors said, Who was? Uh, repeat. Yeah. And I use that, that comes out in this desire for seeing them, 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's an undercurrent of love to everything yeah. that he's saying. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a challenge. It is. Thank you. Right. Right. So, so you're right that as a church gets bigger, that's a bigger challenge. And I, I say that coming from, you know, my last call was in a congregation of 2,500 where we worshiped 1,000 on a weekend. Um, and, and that is tough. We had, we had 12 elders in that congregation, um, which meant each of them had something like 50 families that, that they were helping to, you know, oversee and to stay connected with them and that kind of stuff. So elders play a vital role in all of that. Um, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, that pastors take to heart you know, along the lines of what Lynn said, that, that our desire is to love our people. And when there's that many of them, that's hard. I remember. So shortly after I was called there, and I mean, within a month, um, there was a, there was a person, a woman in the congregation who would come up to me after worship and shake my hand and say, what's my name? <laughs> and my usual response was, you don't know. <laughs> But, but I, by the time I left there after about four years, um, I tried very hard to be able to commune everybody by name. That's hard, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I said, well, did you find someone? She said, no, I didn't talk to them. We realized we were not connected with every child. And that's the same thing in church. That's all about yeah, the general rule of thumb is that is that a pastor can can keep really good connections to a church of about 125, and and beyond that it becomes more challenging, and it it's you know it's dependent on the pastor's just his skill in doing that kind of stuff. There, I I followed a pastor at St. Paul at my last call, <laughs> who was famous for his ability to remember names. Um, just legendary is probably a better word for it. Um, I recall a story about him, and I, I can't, his name escapes me right now, which is ironic. He'll <laughs> 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 come around. <laughs> but, but the story that always stuck with me about him was um, Pastor Henry. But the story about him that always stuck with me was a, a, a member of the congregation, her sister, came to worship from out of town on Easter Sunday, the time when you have the most visitors, you've got lots of people in worship. And he met her as she, as she was coming in the door for worship, just in passing. She introduced herself. She said, I'm so-and-so's sister. He said, that's great. Nice to meet you. That was the entirety of their interaction. Six months later, she was back in town, and he bumped into her at Walmart and knew her name. <laughs> I was like, total yeah, total recall. He had a system too, which just uh, 
I don't know how that worked. It was something about animals, and I don't know how it worked. But, but yeah, he was remarkable at that, and, and names are so important. Um, so yeah, I mean, what you get out of this letter, see, I'm going to bring us back on the track, is you get that sense of connection that Paul feels, even with a group of people he's never met that we're called into the family of God and that we have these relationships that play out within this family that we become part of. And, and that desire to, to have a spirit of thankfulness, to pray, to encourage, to, um, you know, to know your people, to be with them and that kind of stuff. Which one of the verses in this section implies that the readers are primarily Gentiles? 13, yeah. Why? So 13 says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So what was it that jumped out at you that said, hmm, there are probably a bunch of Gentiles there? Okay. Yeah, so he, he sort of, he's like, hey, you, you kind of fit in this category here. Um, Paul kind of is the apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, that's sort of the mission that he's given. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that Paul's primary focus would be Gentiles. Now, the interesting thing is he's going to get into that distinction as we get into chapters 4 and 5, where he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and kind of how all that plays together. So he he's going to address that question. But right off the bat, he kind of introduces it and says, hey, I, I want to... I want to have a harvest among you just like I have among other Gentiles. Um, and verse 13 opens that up. Paul says he hopes for a harvest. This is question number nine. The Greek word literally means fruit. So what do you think he means when he says, I want to have a, a harvest, uh, I want to reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles? What does he mean by a harvest or fruit? He wants some wine, obviously. It's Rome. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Any other thoughts? So to see God and the Spirit at work in their lives. Yeah. What else? But the laborers are... I read that in a book somewhere. Yeah. So what is the harvest in that context? Jesus said it, right? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Souls, yeah, believers. Yeah, exactly. So he's talking about, about sharing the gospel and watching the Spirit bring, those, bring people to faith. That's the harvest that he's looking for. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's a harvest of believers in the one sense, but it's also a desire to spur them to good works. Not in order to win God's favor, right? But in, as, as evidence of the fact that they recognize God's favor in their lives already. Um, our, our good works, our fruit, is always a response to the gospel that has come to us. Any other thoughts in that section? I mean, I think we... we it's just beginning anticipation. Okay. It sends out the letter. Yeah. They receive it, and then they... Paul's like, Ooh, Paul's coming. Yeah. He never makes it there, by the way. <laughs> That's not true. He follows through on his letter and people there in Christian. He never does that. Isn't that crazy? Now, he does wind up in Rome, but not to visit the church in Rome. He winds up there, actually, in shackles 
uh, being brought to the emperor. But right, that's true. But guess what? God brings something out of it that that even so. The old joke, right, is is um. Thank you. Is do you want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. <laughs> right. So we can make plans. That's awesome. But sometimes God, you know, reorients things to do things the way he has. Um, and that's pretty cool, too. Okay. All right. Let's the last two verses, but we got a bunch of questions on. Um, so we're going to look at 16 and 17. Um, Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul uses the word gospel in verse 16. He's already used it in verses 1 and 15. Here's your essay question. In 25 words or fewer, write what the word gospel means to you. You don't have to write it down. Just share. What does gospel mean to you? Because it is kind of a loaded term, isn't it? I mean, it carries a lot of, there's, there's some freight bound up in that word. Okay. So, so gospel then is a shorthand for that word of, of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who lived, died, rose, and ascended for you. Okay. What else? When? Good news of Jesus Christ. What else? The Greek word underneath it is euangelion, which is the word from which we get the word evangelize, by the way. But it, but it, it really does mean kind of good news. I mean, that's sort of what the meat of that, of what that word means. So what does it carry for you? I mean, when you hear somebody say gospel, what does that mean to you? Freedom of sin. Freedom of sin through Christ. Okay, so being freed from the guilt for our sin through Christ. So that juxtaposes it to law, right? Law is what condemns us, reveals our need for a Savior. Gospel is what saves us and reveals our Savior to us. Uh, with the confirmation kids, our whole thing is the SOSs. That, that for law, the SOS is that it shows our sin. And, and for gospel, the SOS is that it shows our Savior. And, and Scripture is shot through with both of them, understand. And, and it's not the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. That's not how that functions. Um, gospel is throughout the whole thing. Law is throughout the whole thing. But all of it with the intention of bringing us to an understanding of who we are in God's sight and, and a recognition of our sinful nature and then the revelation of the, the solution to that problem who is Jesus Christ, who came and freed us from our condemnation by his death. So you almost can't say gospel without thinking about law. And, and I'll tell you that one of the revolutionary things that Martin Luther did 
was to, to discern the distinction between the two and to understand that there are two different functions going on in Scripture. That there is law that is, that is condemning us, that is pointing out our sinfulness, that is revealing our shortcoming relative to God and his perfection. And there is gospel that is driving us and pointing us to Jesus Christ as the one who solves that problem. And it's all over the place within Scripture. And the challenge is this, if you don't rightly divide the two of those things, then all of a sudden it gets murky. What's going on? Are God's commands somehow the way that he gives us grace? Like if I can keep the Ten Commandments, then is that how I earn God's favor? Well, that's turning the law into some weird kind of gospel that it's not intended to be. Or you know, is it gospel when, when God tells us what we must do? Well, no, that's not good news, but yet it flows from the gospel. I mean, that having those things all mixed up becomes very muddy and very confusing very quickly. And it's where you get things like works righteousness that says that the way I earn my salvation, and the key word there is I earn my salvation, is by doing all the things that are right, by praying the right prayer, by living the right life, by... Um, saying the right words, by giving the right amount, by eating the right foods, you know, whatever it might be in your, in your day and time, all of those things become law. You know, this is what you must do in order to be saved. And that contravenes the whole message of the gospel, which is you can't do it. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, that your salvation is actually earned by Jesus Christ and given to you as a gift. What a blessing it is. And by the way, what good news that is. So all of a sudden, then there's this understanding that when the law weighs on us, when it presses down on us or it condemns us, there's this good news of the gospel that says, yes, but Jesus Christ died for you. And for his sake, all of your sins have been forgiven and taken away. And you stand before God righteous, not because of what you've done, but in spite of what you've done, for the sake of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And the way I've heard it put before is every single religion in the world, with the exception of Christianity, is about do. Christianity is about done. And it points us to Jesus Christ, and that's what gospel at its heart, really is about. So, essentially, gospel goes with after Christ was born. This yes and no, because because if you go back to the uh, Old Testament, yeah. you hear from people. Oh yeah, you do. <laughs> That's the cool thing, but it's it's different, right? Yes, right. It's different. It takes the form of a promise, mm-hmm. um, and and really, I mean, it pops up, you know, chapter three of Genesis. And it's transferred to the tenth. Yeah, and so what, what we see then, because you do get it in the Old Testament, but it's not so easily discernible as, as you know, the more concrete situation in the New Testament, where all of a sudden we're like, oh, 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 now I get it. But in the Old Testament, it's this promise of one who would come, the Messiah, um, who would come and would be the one to save his people. Um, you know, it pops up Genesis 3 is the fall, right? Adam and Eve fall into sin. They're going to be cast out of the garden and all that kind of business. And Jesus pronounces judgment on all of that. And he says, you know, he says, the woman, what have you done? And, and she's like, well, you know, she starts with Adam, I guess. He's like, what have you done? And he's like, oh, it wasn't me. It was the woman. She, she made me do it. 
And he goes to Eve, and she's like, what have you done? And she was like, well, well it wasn't me. It was the serpent. He deceived me. And, and so there's curses that get pronounced, and there's judgment that comes out of all that law kind of stuff, right? And then he goes, and, and when he speaks to the serpent, what does he say? He says, he says, you know, cursed are you above all the livestock. On your belly you shall go, and dirt you shall eat, and all that kind of business. And then he goes, the, the descendant of the woman, the seed of the woman, singular, you know, there will be there will come a time when you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. And that's the promise of what's ultimately going to happen on the cross. That the descendant of the a descendant of the woman, Jesus Christ, is going to come one day. And and Satan is going to think he's won because he's going to bruise his heel. He's going to cause some damage. But Jesus is going to crush his head, which is fatal. And that will be the end. So that's the first. It's called proto-euangelion, if you want the good fancy Greek term for it. But but it, it's first gospel is what it means. And and so that's the that's the first place that promise shows up in the Garden of Eden, where where God says, "Wow, things have really gone to hell in a handbasket here." But I'm going to fix it, and it's going to come to pass that all of this will be dealt with. And there's that promise that then you know after how many centuries, ultimately culminates in Jesus Christ and what he comes and does. And so I had somebody ask me about Martin Luther and kind of his views on the Jews, because he wrote some just really terrible stuff later in his life about the Jews. And a lot of it, I think, was born out of frustration that there were so many Jews that he was interacting with who refused to recognize that Jesus was the fulfillment of all these promises that had been made in the Old Testament. And I, and I think it came out in some just really not good writing. Um, you know, Luther, <laughs> Luther didn't, didn't pull any punches. Read anything he wrote. He's pretty blunt. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so the, even the Old Testament is shot through with gospel, but it doesn't look like the gospel that we see in the New Testament because it's a promise of what will come. And, then, and now in the New Testament, we're looking, you know, the center of all of it is the cross. And, and everything in the Old Testament is leading up to the cross, and everything in the New Testament is looking back to the cross, but then ultimately looking forward to what eternity looks like. I'm not hitting on the head. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all through both of them. Lynn? Confirmation Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least you know the reference. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Which is, it does kind of boil everything down to, like, the the meat of it. Yeah. Yeah, Myra. Yeah. Between them and Jesus? You want to open that, that, uh, that can of worms? <laughs> well, yeah, no. Okay, so... 
Oh, between the between the creation and the fall. Oh, wow. I don't know. You, about about two chapters. <laughs> yeah, be fruitful and multiply. So, so less than nine months. <laughs> that we know of. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I never thought of that. That's a good question. But yeah, pretty early on. I mean, it happens pretty quick. What else? Thoughts? Yes. There was. Yeah. Yeah. Where the, that's an ass, isn't it? That's a great. Yeah, you're right. Because he was, and he was bold. I mean, he wasn't pulling any punches. He was really clear about what he was saying. Uh-huh. Right. Yep. Yeah. Right. And the Trinity is what sets it apart. That's absolutely true. That that. We worship one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and go, John. Okay, yeah, we worship one God and Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, always recognizing the three persons, but never dividing the substance of them. I mean, that's Athanasian Creed stuff. Um, but to your point about evangelism and the challenges of it is, it, you're absolutely right that we bump into all kinds of crazy, weird beliefs. And, and how do you speak into that? And I, I think the answer is that we let we let Scripture speak for itself because it is powerful, and and God works through that, and and know that as we witness, um, fortunately, the the conversion of the unbeliever is is above my pay grade. <laughs> that that ultimately it is the Holy Spirit who brings people to faith, and so, you know, we share our faith. I think evangelism is always most effective in the context of relationship, which is. See how good I did just pulling that right back into this letter that Paul's writing? Um, that, that, you know, in that context of relationship, this is somebody who hears you because you mean something to them. And so your, your words carry more weight and you're able to speak into their situation in a way that, you know, standing at the gas station asking people if they know if they're going to heaven just doesn't do. Um, <laughs> and we've all bumped into people doing that, right? John, go ahead. Okay. Okay. Mm Mm -hmm. 
That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And both apply. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Don't judge it till you heard it. <laughs> did I talk about Jesus? Okay, then I did all right. I many, many rabbit holes. 25 words or less. In 25 words or less, right. That's actually our confirmation kids now. They're at the point where they're having to do worship reports, which includes a summary of the sermon. So 25 words or less. Um, all right, so back to Paul. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God. What other sources of power is the church today tempted to substitute for the gospel? Ooh. Entertainment, big time. Yeah. Yeah. Things like Super Bowl watch parties and stuff. No, I'm just <laughs> That's fellowship, though. That prosperity gospel is, yeah, big time. Yeah. Which, is, which essentially is the promise that, hey, if you're a Jesus follower, then you'll get everything you ever wanted. And I still am waiting for that Maserati. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, health, health, wealth, and and whatever else. And the the problem with that is, that's not how it works, right? I mean, believers get cancer, you know. <laughs> yeah. Whose who's, who's picture is that? <laughs> yeah so entertainment prosperity what else Interesting. Okay. So so taken to its absurd extreme, that's Westboro Baptist Church, right? The, the, these are the people who would um, appear at, at funerals of prominent people with signs that said, God hates that bags and stuff like that. The big time message of hate. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So missing the, the loved aspect of what Scripture actually teaches and leaning hard on law and condemnation. Interesting. What else? Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, when Scripture says that we are supposed to be in the world but not of the world. So that we, we still have to engage, right? Any other thoughts? Money. Money. Yeah. Our favorite idol. Well, our second favorite idol. My favorite idol is me. Um, possessions. Stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So for churches and, and, and the way the churches are tempted to, I mean, the things I came up with were, you name it. I mean, there's bunches of them. Church growth strategies. I think that's one of them. 
um, you know, where you're focusing on programmatic stuff rather than emphasizing the gospel. Um, and uh, traditional worship versus contemporary worship. Um, a lot of times that kind of becomes the, the prominent thing as opposed to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I, hymnals sometimes. Um, I was I'm familiar with churches where, you know, had to be TLH, the, the Lutheran hymnal from 1941, because that's the hymnal Jesus used or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we both Oh, big time, yeah. Yeah. things we and so the encouragement for us is to remember that it is the gospel that is the power of God and that our focus always is on Jesus Christ and him crucified we preach Christ crucified I read that in a book too um, we preach Christ crucified he's the center of all of it and the gospel is the power of salvation that's the means through which the Holy Spirit works and so our, our mission is to faithfully and properly communicate the gospel regularly. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a German Lutheran pastor back during World War II, um, who stood up against um, Hitler and actually ultimately was killed in a concentration camp, um, he, wrote some, he wrote a lot of good stuff, but one of my favorite quotes of his has to do with church growth. And he said, he said, um, Christ grows the church. Any man who sets out to, to grow the church is certainly on his way to building a temple to idols without even meaning to. Um, but it is Christ who grows the church. And the thing is that the time, and I'm paraphrasing, but the times that from human standards may look like times of tearing down could actually be the times when he's doing amazing building. And the times that from human standards might look like times of, of great success might actually be times when Jesus is tearing things down. But, but the trick is to remember that if that's, that's Jesus' area, not yours. Our area is to confess. Confess the gospel. Confess Jesus Christ. Confess, confess, confess. That's what we are to do. And let Jesus build or not build wherever he chooses to. Stay out of his realm, stick to yours, which is to share the gospel. That's what we do. And, and I think that's the emphasis here. When he says that the gospel is the power of God, it is that should be the center of what we do in the church is the gospel. And everything else should revolve around that. And if we keep that at the center, then everything is right, rightly organized and rightly oriented, and it will move where it needs to go. So thoughts, comments? Complaint. Right. Right. Yeah, one of the fastest growing Christian areas in the world is China, where Christianity is outlawed. Um. <laughs> yeah, right. The attractional model doesn't work the same way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's because the power of the gospel, which is just mind-blowing when you actually kind of grasp what, what you're being given. Other thoughts?
Christianity is a strange animal because it thrives under persecution. Um, and I can't explain why, but it does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you are, if you can die, yeah. whether it's dying in persecution or if you die in the, the end of your life. There's some hope in there. You know, Right. That's not to say that there's not fear in the midst of persecution. I mean, read, you know, Revelation is written to a whole bunch of people who are being severely persecuted. And, and it's and the message of it is your faith is right. You're you know, the end of the story. It's all going to be OK, <laughs> despite whatever the world might bring. To you. Yeah. Any other thoughts about gospel as power? I, I don't I didn't bring it out here. I don't think the word for power, by the way, which I just think is cool. Um, in in Greek, the word is dynamis, which is the same word from which we get our word dynamite. <laughs> so yeah, that's just kind of neat. The the power of the gospel. Um, when I think of being saved, question number twelve. I think chiefly in terms of being saved from which of the following: a guilty conscience, the dangers of a hostile world, the fear of death. The wrath of God or what else? Anybody want to take a stab at him? Not sure there's a wrong answer, but all of the above. Is that what's that? From sin. From sin. Okay. Yeah. But all the things condemnation for sin was the one I wrote in. Condemnation for sin, yeah. And all the others kind of fall out of that, don't they? A guilty conscience, dangers of the hostile world, fear of death, wrath of God, all that. I don't I don't think the fear of death is a big one for, for the Christian. For the most part, I think that's true. And, and you know, that we approach death differently. Um, Paul writes about it in, in uh, I guess it's First Corinthians, where he says, I, you know, I don't want you to be uninformed so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You know, we, we, we understand and we respond to death in the context of our faith, and it changes. Because of kind of what, what you were saying, that we have some insight into what comes after. For the most part, we have fear of the dying. The dying part is okay. scary, and so many sure. things can happen. Right. Um, so that's the thing. Right. But one time horizon has been shifted right that that all of a sudden we're not looking at at death as the end of the of the story but as death is just another part that leads into eternity so you know our perspective is different i think most people get my they haven't completed their plan okay everything that they should have been right and it's too soon. Right. So I still got stuff I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I know I've had people say that to me directly. Who are, are, 
Right. Which are practical considerations that, that kind of run alongside some of these eternal things. But yeah, they're, they're subservient to them. Paul says salvation comes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why in that order? Okay. It's new to Okay, yeah. So it's a new revelation. What else? The Jews have had it for centuries. Right. Some of them still don't get it. Right. But so Jesus talks that way too. Um, um Jesus comes and says that he was sent to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But he but he does say both. Um and and part of it I think is that that you <laughs> You have this pre-existing relationship with God where he has entrusted to you these words of his revelation in the Old Testament to preserve them and to carry them forward. And by the way, it is through the Jews that salvation comes to us. So therefore, it only makes sense then that it is to the Jews first because it is from them and then to the rest of the world. So it's this kind of going out that happens. Jesus, um, in the he talks about how they are his witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and and to the ends of the earth. And it's a sort of increasing ripples, if you want to call it. Um, yeah, it really highlights the role of the Jews as the vehicle of salvation. They're the means by which God is going to deliver this salvation. How do you define righteousness? <laughs> and we got like negative one minute. So <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that one. <laughs> if you want to look up the passages, they'll be helpful. But uh, I, I would I would boil righteousness down to a right standing before God. Our righteousness is about how we are in front of God, and our righteousness ultimately then is based on Jesus Christ. Um, and, and I'll share with you, you know, the, the first words of the funeral service are, in holy baptism, this person was covered with a robe of Christ's righteousness that covered all their sins. Um, and so our righteousness ultimately is about Jesus Christ and about the gift that is given to us, not anything we've done. But it's about our standing before God. Um, finally, Paul loves to cite the Old Testament for his readers. Um, in verse 17, what passage or what scripture is he citing? Um, and I'll tell you, but I'll also read it to you because it's kind of good. Um, he's citing Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Um, which I know is is a you know probably most of you spend a lot of time studying Habakkuk, um, but let me just I'll, I'll read you Habakkuk um, two verses one through four because it kind of gives the context for it. Uh, I will take my stand at the watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And that was the quote at the end there. The righteous shall live by faith. The last piece I'm going to leave as an exercise for the reader. What will you take away from this lesson? We'll pick up um, at that point with next week. You'll notice in these, at the end of each lesson, there is a verse for memorizing if you're interested in doing that. Um, you know, we talked about how Luther encouraged Christians to memorize the entire book of Romans. 
Um, but, you know, if you want to get started with that, we give you a little verse here at the end of each of these that you can memorize if you'd like to do that. So, any last words? I mean, we went over a little bit. I'm, oh, it started late. So. Let's close with a prayer. Um, gracious Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word and to be fed by it and built up by it. Uh, we pray that you would continue to bless us in the coming week, uh, that you would keep us safe as weather rolls in in the next couple of days, um, and that in all things you would open our mouths that we might proclaim the amazing truth of the gospel to all who need to hear it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. I pray that you learned a bit, that you met Jesus, and that your faith was built up through the discussion that you just heard. If you want to learn more about Holy Trinity, you can visit our website. It's www.holytrend.org. The website for the LCMS, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, is www.lcms.org. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Have a great week.